Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Rachel Brown is a consultant psychiatrist in the United Kingdom who specializes in metabolic health. She graduated from Edinburgh University in 2003 and has worked in the field of psychiatry since 2004. She is a Nutrition Network Advisor and Certified Functional Medicine Practitioner. She also holds a Master's Degree in Medical Laws and Ethics and is involved in ongoing research into ketogenic diets and mental disorders. Dr. Brown is an advocate for therapeutic carbohydrate restriction and dietary modification to address underlying metabolic dysfunction and gut dysbiosis as underlying causes of mental disorders, as well as other lifestyle measures for optimizing health. She is the author of the best-selling book, Metabolic Madness, Understand Why Metabolic Health is Key to Mental Health, Your Keys to Success, which addresses underlying inflammation and mental disorders and uncovers why metabolic health is critical for mental health. You can find her on Instagram at Carnivore Shrink. Dr. Rachel Brown, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Well, thank you. And what an introduction. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this was an abbreviated introduction, by the way. We could have gone much further on all the things that you have accomplished, (laughs) for sure. Uh, Just absolutely love your work. I love founding you on social media. And I'm so excited for this chat today. We've been fortunate enough to talk to lots of people about low-carbohydrate diets and mental disorders. And you really have such a good grasp of of this as as a study. And so I'm really excited to talk to you today. You're calling us in from Scotland, I believe. Is that right? You're just outside of Edinburgh? Yeah. Yes, that's right. I'm in Edinburgh itself. So yeah. What is Scotland like? Oh, in general, or um, I'm just looking out the window at the moment and we've got horrendous weather this evening, but that's not necessarily any different to usual. Um, No, I mean, Scotland's an absolutely stunning country um, in terms of the countryside and the hills and, and outdoor life. Um, but I'm a little bit immersed in the in the city itself, so yeah. I do sometimes wish I lived more r- rurally. But uh, yeah. Well, it looks beautiful. <laughs> it looks beautiful. My my last name is Rough, and so I'm sure I've got you know friends and family or, or, or family up there somewhere. So I'll definitely yeah. need to need to visit at some point. So uh, you were born and raised in Scotland, is that correct? Um, no, actually. So I was born in Northern Ireland, um, but have never really lived there. Although I have a lot of family there, and um, I actually lived out in the US. Um, my parents commuted over, or yeah, not commuted, they emigrated over there um, when I was a baby. And I remember being at kindergarten and then we moved to Scotland when I was about six. I see. Gotcha. So you've been there a very long time. How long have you been yeah. interested in the brain and brain health? Uh, well, to be honest, when I went to university to study medicine, I I don't really know why, but I always had an interest in mental health. Um, and it wasn't really from any personal experience or family experience necessarily I I just don't really really know why I just felt it was something that I should be doing and I went through university and didn't really enjoy a huge amount um, otherwise apart from orthopedics which is just a bit random Um, but I'm quite practical so I like the engineering side of that Um, and yeah I just went straight into specializing psychiatry as soon as I could and I think I've always been fascinated by human behavior and just intrigued by um, kind of apparent behavior that you can get. Yeah, we talked. Um, we talked about your master's degree as well in ethics. What was it like to learn about that? Oh yeah, that was really interesting, and that actually came about from I was working within liaison psychiatry, so that's psychiatry in the general hospital, and we used to get asked a lot of questions of other specialties that weren't really psychiatric at all. They were more medical legal type questions, and that just sparked my interest in, in medical legal aspects. So. Um, I studied medical law and ethics, although it was 
yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I was going to say I was more interested in the ethics side, but I don't, I don't really know. Actually, I think both, both aspects were really interesting. Um, but it was, it was a real departure from, from studying medicine and working within medicine. Cause I think after so many years, you just get into a very particular way of thinking about things. And, um, I found the law quite challenging, um, to get into, but I really enjoyed it um, and saw it through to its completion. So, Wow. It sounds to me like something that would be helpful throughout your entire career to have gone through that and then practice medicine later. Was that your experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So although I don't use it directly in my kind of day-to-day NHS work, um, it does make me feel really sound um, and confident in terms of making ethical decisions and and, you know, it is a huge interest of mine just thinking about the ethics of medicine in general. And um, the past couple of years have been quite mind boggling. <laughs> I won't get onto that too much. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely kind of reignited my passion about medical ethics and just doing the right thing. And I, I think, unfortunately, Western medicine um, has been captured by a certain extent by the pharmaceutical industry. And I, I do, there's lots of ethical dilemmas in the field of psychiatry, but I think, I think more widely than that, there are lots of ethical dilemmas uh, just in Western medicine. Yeah. Um, medicine. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Tell us about your yeah. training in psychiatry specifically. It's almost been two decades, basically. Like what things did you learn? Mm-hmm. What things were you guys talking about back then? Like how, how were you learning how to treat patients? Oh, so there's quite a standard kind of training program that you go through in the UK. Um, it's changed a bit since I qualified um, in my time. So the, the names of the different training grades you go through has changed. Um, but and so these days it's a six year training program. Um, in, in my days, it could end up being a bit longer, um, depending if, if people took year, a year out between different parts of training. But you essentially you go through a core kind of three years or so of um well, we call it core training here. It was called something else in my day. And you learn different theory and you have to sit exams for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And some of it has clinical application, but a lot of it was about kind of neurotransmitters and learning about drugs and medications and the different actions that they would have. Um, but then also some more esoteric stuff that I don't even, to be honest, remember now, but stuff that you would just learn to pass exams, essentially. And um, there are certain things you have to do in your training. So you rotate through different subspecialties. Um, So there's lots of different niche specialties within the field of psychiatry. So I work as a general psychiatrist for adults, um, but you can rotate through intellectual disability or child and adolescent or liaison in the general hospital or older adults psychiatry. So you do a variety of different posts. Um, just to build up your experience. And then there's certain competencies you have to meet and, and you kind of get assessed as you go along in the workplace. Um, so there's there's different assessments that are broken down, um, but also clinical exams where you examine patients in front of examiners as part of your membership to the Royal College exams. Um, but really, you kind of the fundamentals are about taking a psychiatric history, um, excluding other kind of common physical disorders that might be uh, responsible for presenting in a psychiatric sort of way. Um, you are you are trained to think about someone's physical health overall because um, you would always pay attention to something that could be organic because, you know, have an underlying physical cause as the first thing before going on to diagnose a more what we would call a functional med- mental disorder. So, you know, something like depression or anxiety. 
Um, and then it's about pharmaceuticals and then other modes of treatment. So kind of psychotherapy, psychology. But we've got other disciplines who work with us. So we have some teams of physiotherapists. Um, it tends to be more occupational therapists um, and other kind of nurse practitioners sometimes that specialize. Wow. Wow. Well, it sounds and like psychology. Yeah, I did mention psychology, didn't I? I thought I'd forgotten that <laughs> well, <it> sounds, <laughs> for a second. It sounds very general. Like it seems like you were able to work with lots of different people. What What were the majority of cases that you were treating in the very beginning and has that evolved or changed over time? Oh, so like the bread and butter, for want of a better term, um, in general psychiatry is is anything and everything from depression, anxiety through to bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and some of the more severe kind of enduring mental disorders like psychotic type illnesses. Um, some specialties will get more in the way of dementia. I don't tend to see that very often in, in my um, in my current job. Um, but and then in the general hospital, you get acute confusion states, so deliriums that present. And then there's a whole um, there's a whole subspecialty all dealing with addictions that I didn't do myself, but some people end up specializing in that. Okay. And so now I'm my job as a consultant is a bit different. So the last six years I've been working within a crisis team. Um, so the actual setting where I work is I tend to go out and see people in their homes or else they come up to see me, but we provide treatment at home instead of admitting them to hospital. And so it's a lot of people who are suicidal that I tend to deal with in my day-to-day -day work now. And some people might be psychotic or they might be severely depressed. And for others, it might just be social circumstances and um, like more of a situational crisis because of social issues. Um, and somebody's had a, a kind of reached crisis point with suicidal thoughts as a result of what's going on in their life elsewhere. Wow. And so a whole variety. Yeah. A lot of difficult situations. It really sounds like we've been fortunate, um, fortunate enough to host Dr. Chris Palmer on our show. And we talked to him okay, and one of his yeah. patients, Brett Lloyd, who you're familiar with. And he just came out yeah. with his book, brain energy, which in the low carbohydrate space, all of us have been waiting and waiting and waiting for that book. And what an amazing, yeah. what an amazing job he did. And, and, you know, even, yeah. even to the point of like hearing him read the book and how emotional he got as he was talking about some of the things mm -hmm. he was talking about. And, and, you know, even being familiar with this topic and his work, you, you really got a sense of how difficult it is for somebody in your position to, to like make a diagnosis. There's so many different ones to choose from. They all have different nuances mm -hmm. and then how to choose how, how you're going to help that person with these different drugs. Can you comment on, on the challenges there and, and what that was presenting for you? Yeah. So I, th I think there's a certain amount of, um, kind of experience. So I, I think over time in psychiatry, you just develop a level of clinical experience where it can be it can be quite easy to diagnose people, but but equally, there every so often you'll come across somebody where you're not really sure um, which diagnosis to pin it down to, and um, there can be a lot of overlap between different diagnoses, for sure. Um, I I think the longer I work and the more I look into underlying metabolic um, health issues and how they relate to mental health, and also with my functional medicine training, the more I think the more I question the the validity of our diagnoses or the the usefulness of them because I think unfortunately there's a lot of stigma that comes with certain diagnoses and um there's actually a lot of overlap between different diagnoses and the sort of treatment approaches that we might take whether it's talking treatments in psychology or, or whether it's pharmaceuticals um so the way the way my brain has come to think about things now is 
I look at I look at the majority of mental disorders as having underlying um, deficits at a cellular level that you know and a lot in common um, amongst the different disorders that a diagnosis doesn't really capture or do any justice to. And I think I think I've heard Chris speak on one or two podcasts, and and I think he's touched on it as well in terms of the importance of epigenetics. And I went through training thinking that if somebody had a family history, there was a huge amount of emphasis placed on on a family history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia and almost um, conferring an inevitability in terms of the the children developing uh, those kinds of disorders, particularly if somebody is presenting in an acute mental health crisis. And now my way of thinking has just really changed on that. So I think environment is is the bigger factor in everything. Um, and, and part of that is obviously our lifestyle choices. So how were you able to come to those conclusions? I, I'm assuming that you only learned that, which is different than what you were taught and what you were trained in because what you were giving people wasn't working. Is Was that the case? Um, yeah, so I mean, I definitely see that standard treatments such as medications can be helpful. I definitely see them help people, um, particularly in the acute setting. Um, so somebody with an acute psychotic episode or a really severe depression, I see treatments like medications or even ECT can be helpful for them. But equally, I see other people who don't respond very well to treatment or they only respond partially um, and I, I think Chris Palmer, if I'm right in saying, he tends to deal with the more treatment resistant cases. So that would be rehabilitation psychiatry in the UK, um, which is a field that I don't work in and I haven't previously. But there are some people who do develop really chronic symptoms to the extent that they they can't even function independently and they end up in supported accommodation or even long term hospital care. Um, so, so it's definitely true to say that the treatments don't work for everybody. Um, and, but I don't know if that's where my interest came from. I I think, I think my interest just came purely from wanting to know the root cause of people's difficulties and just want, just being, um, curious, just being curious really about what could the underlying mechanisms be. And I I trained with Dr. Georgia Ede early on in 2021. I was about to say last year, but we're, (laughs) we're two years on now. And, um, uh, yeah, that that was just such a good training and just such a nice way to connect with other clinicians from other countries who um, obviously have a similar interest and also to hear Georgia's personal experience about the success she's had in her practice using ketogenic diets. And I honestly can't remember where, um, you know, at what point I realized that diet could have a huge impact on somebody's mental health. So I think before I trained with Georgia, I had wanted to do a deep dive into all of the evidence and then her course came up and it was a perfect opportunity to to network and learn from somebody who had been using um, metabolic approaches to treat mental disorder for quite a number of years um so yeah I can't tell you exactly where the interest came from but it's definitely been there a long time and I've just myself I've always had an interest in nutrition and lifestyle factors and actually more natural health type approaches holistic health approaches as opposed to pharmaceutical yeah. So what was that? What was that kind of evolution like always being interested in nutrition? Like, did, did did you have a hunch very early on that nutrition was connected and maybe you just didn't exactly know how or, you know, were you had you ever looked at things like vegan diets or vegetarian diets or, or anything like that as it related to mental health in particular? Um, I think it's more in the last probably five years or so that I developed more of an interest. And um, my interest in nutrition has been more from my own personal kind of health issues. So 
Um, I identify as a sugar addict and it took me many years to, to really kind of bottom that issue out and become fully aware of the extent of that in my life. And so a lot of the nutritional interest I've had has just been from, from my own kind of struggles over the years um, with the nutritional side of things. And then also some family and friends who've, who've noticed clear health benefits by changing their lifestyles as yeah. well. Wow. Okay. So what things did you learn in this course that were different than, than what you had been trained in? Oh, I'm, um, I was about to say all of it. <laughs> so, so um, I mean, it was really nice. So Georgia, Georgia teaches about a modern psychiatric evaluation and it, it's like a standard psychiatric evaluation, but including um, a detailed kind of nutritional diet history and, and doing some other kind of blood testing that we wouldn't do a standard in kind of Western psychiatric practice, um, you know, like particularly paying attention to, to signs of insulin resistance and those, those types of issues. And so it was really just, it was just really nice to hear somebody eloquent, eloquently describe um, an integrated approach that included nutritional and metabolic um, strategies to assessing a psychiatric patient. And then, and then it was really nice to hear from her about her successes, but also a summary of all the evidence in terms of the case studies that are out there um, and some quite old um, case studies that I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of. So just um, aspects of the research literature. Um, so that, that kind of sparked my interest again in terms of looking more into the research literature as well. Yeah. And you mentioned research that is even very old. Were you surprised that there was as much research on mental disorders being metabolic in nature as there was? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I was surprised that, that there just wasn't any sort of common awareness about some of the case studies that are out there. Um, I think, unfortunately, what we're lacking are, are what's felt to be the gold standard in, in evidence-based medicine, which is randomized controlled trials. Um, however, there are trials ongoing in quite, you know, several countries just now. And I've, I've been lucky to be involved in a local trial that's been happening in Edinburgh and um, looking at the ketogenic diet and bipolar disorder. Um, so there's a pilot study we just recently finished uh, here and there are plans um, to roll out further research. So I think it's going to be an exciting few years for the field of metabolic psychiatry. Um, I just I have a real personal frustration that I know and I'm in touch with with. I couldn't even tell you how many people, but lots and lots of people who have who have really revolutionized their mental health, and some of whom have recovered after decades of severe mental illness and where other treatment modalities had failed consistently for them. And yet making a, a lifestyle change and particularly a dietary change is what has brought their health back to them. And um, there's just so much information out there, particularly on podcasts. So one of the researchers that I work um, with in Edinburgh, I've been working with him for a while and I hadn't realized he had a podcast um, with an American colleague and they both have bipolar disorder and they both interview people, lots of different people with bipolar disorder who have really gotten their lives back by using a ketogenic diet. Um, you know, whether they've tried other mainstream medications or not. And yeah, it's just a real uh, source of frustration for me that there's not more awareness of that within mainstream psychiatric practice. Yeah, well, that's a really good point. I think lots of... <laughs> 
you're never going to see change coming from the top down, but the more and more people that find this information and actually apply it, we're going to have just more case studies. It's going to get to the point Mm -hmm. where we're not going to need as much of the randomized control trials. And we need those. We do need that science. But when enough people Mm -hmm. find healing after decades of suffering, I, yeah, I think that's going to really kind of change the tide on all of this for a listener who is not familiar with any of this and they're learning that brain disorders of many different types can be metabolic in nature. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? What is exactly going on in a brain that is, is not metabolically healthy? Yeah. So it's, it's quite complicated. I always kind of start with that disclaimer, but um, yeah, I mean, it's essentially a problem to do with energy regulation and energy availability for the brain. So something that, that we do get concerned about, um, and when I say we, I, I mean the psychiatrists who, who have an awareness about the impact that metabolic health has on mental health. Um, but the thing that we do tend to get concerned about is insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, so chronically high levels of insulin. Um, and we know from the research literature that high carbohydrate diets are inflammatory in themselves because when you repeatedly spike your blood glucose level, um, it has all sorts of it has all sorts of impacts at a cellular level um, and and different outcomes. So we could talk about advanced glycation end products and um, you know where you get glucose sticking onto different protein molecules or even DNA in the body and causing dysregulation at a cellular level. Um, but it's partly about oxidative stress as well. So I know Chris in his book he talks he places a huge amount of em- emphasis on mitochondria. Um, but but I also agree that mitochondrial health is, is absolutely key because the mitochondria are the energy powerhouses of the cell. And we know that when a brain becomes insulin resistant over time, which means that, that the brain cells just aren't able to use the insulin that's still there because of chronically high insulin levels, then your brain can be swimming in glucose and yet have no access to that energy. And that's when you run into difficulties with cognitive symptoms or um, even anxiety or just other symptoms of mental disorder. Um, and, and we know, because a lot of the research that's out there is in Alzheimer's disease, which some researchers refer to as type 3 diabetes. Now, um, because the insulin, you know, there's so much insulin resistance in the brain, but we know that switching your metabolism over from being a glucose burner to being a ketone burner or a fat burner, um, there's lots of advantages for the brain in terms of providing more energy, um, you know, ketone bodies cross the blood-brain barrier and can provide energy to brain cells um, when there's a diff- there's a problem with insulin resistance, when the insulin just isn't able to access them or work properly. Um, and we know that it's a, a cleaner source of fuel for the brain. Um, I actually, I see it, um, my husband will kill me if I keep, keep, keep on mentioning him, but he's got type 1 diabetes and uh, he... He's keto and has been for a while now. I forget how long, but he used to have um, the odd hypoglycemic attack where his brain just wouldn't work properly. So at times you could just see he was struggling to process. And um, we used to always joke because I would get annoyed at him at those times because he would just be not acting like himself and just be generally really irritating. Um, And I wouldn't understand why he couldn't understand what I was trying to say or he was just just acting not like himself but yeah I haven't seen that for a few years now and that's because his brain's running on ketones so even if his blood glucose is a bit low um, because he's taking too much insulin say um, he doesn't get any of the cognitive effects that he would have previously done 
in his hypoglycemic state. So I think it's very similar um, what happens in terms of dementia or other mental disorders when you have symptoms because your brain is just um, just has sluggish metabolism. Um, so yeah, you get something called cerebral glucose hypometabolism, which is just kind of sluggish brain metabolism. And we know that from the research into Alzheimer's. But there's actually a lot of research out there across a range of different mental disorders showing that people with mental disorder are more likely to have insulin resistance. Um, and particularly bipolar disorder, it seems to be. So, wow. so yeah, wow. it's hugely complicated. And then inflammation comes into it and immune cell activation. And just from my reading of the literature um, in the past year or so, and, and a lot of what I based the book on, this, the more I look into, the more I just find um, overwhelming evidence to support use of a ketogenic diet because of its anti-inflammatory effects and um, and the fact that it it reduces oxidative stress and reduces um, immune cell markers and inflammation kind of oxidative stress markers in, in the body and and then you go looking for research to see oh well in schizophrenia is there evidence of elevated inflammatory markers and there you go there is and there is in depression and yeah, so on and so forth. It's uh, really been really interesting to to look into. So until your course with Georgia Ede, do you remember learning at any point that the brain could run on ketones? I think most of us know that no. the brain has to run on glucose. And that's the only thing you really hear. Like in your training, did anybody mention ketones or, or anything no. like that? No, never. I mean, in my the whole of my training, I don't think I I don't remember a single day where I ever had any sort of nutritional training. I, I spoke to somebody recently on a podcast, and I joked, "Well, maybe I just maybe I missed those classes at university. I don't know if I skipped class, but I do not remember a single thing. I don't remember everything from uni. It's been a while since I was there, but um, yeah, certainly not in psychiatric training. There isn't any emphasis on." on really asking people about their, their dietary choices or lifestyle. And yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's I mean, not good. that's not good. Even, even if they were given nutritional education, like I've got a big old textbook back here that I have to use when I need to pass off my certification every years, every two years to be a nutrition coach. There's one sentence that mentions ketones and a ketogenic state. And that's it. It's a major pathway of metabolism. And there's one sentence in this book that's got like 600 pages. It's crazy how they just kind of omitted or passed through it so quickly. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't really have that much confidence that if, um, if there was a drive to include nutrition within mainstream medical training or subsequent specialty training, that they would actually be telling us the right, the right stuff, because I think there's so much kind of corporate influence, um, even in medical education. And, you know, you know, the, the average doctor out there isn't up to date in terms of cholesterol or, you know, the cholesterol heart hypothesis or any of that. You have to be somebody who has a particular interest. And, and, you know, the main thing is to prescribe statins to everybody. And that still goes on. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't have much confidence about getting the right information. And then you just look at the field of uh, nutritional research and, and dietitians and um, I think that's case in point, probably what most of them are, are recommending. It's not going to be, it's not going to be low carb. Yeah. So how did your practice change after taking this training course and learning all about ketogenic diets and their benefit with mental health? Yeah. So, I mean, as standard, I, I pretty much ask most people I see these days about what, what do they tend to eat? What, what does their diet like when I'm asking them about their appetite? 
Um, it's quite difficult, the, the job that I'm in, the role I'm in, just being in a crisis team because we tend to only see people for two or three weeks. Um, so that's been a source of frustration for me, being able to follow people up. So, um, And then the other issue is that if somebody's, I need to use a judgment call basically about when I mention it, if I'm going to mention the role of nutrition, because sometimes sometimes somebody can be so unwell that they just wouldn't be able to take in the information or it's just patently obvious that their lifestyle and their family that are also invested in, for example, being vegan, that that I feel, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to really distress them more by by introducing a subject um, that is probably not all that realistic that they're gonna gonna want to change their lifestyle. Having said that, I've got some really nice leaflets from the training with Georgia, and sometimes I just leave an information resource leaflet with links to some of her talks online and, and say, you know, there's no pressure on you to change anything just now, but maybe in the future you might want to look into this. Um, so, but it's particularly people with bipolar disorder that I would, I would, um, probably be more forthcoming about discussing particularly ketogenic diets with just because I've been involved in a trial recently and there are other trials ongoing but I you know I would speak to anybody and everybody um, unfortunately the Scottish diet isn't great on average <laughs> um, and it's not unusual for me to be in people's homes and there's just bags of sweets lying around or um, you know, I was out in somebody's home this morning and, and their BMI was quite high and they were in crisis and they were sitting with orange juice on the table. And I was thinking, oh, um, you know, like people trying to do the right thing, but the information that's out there is so bad. Um, it, it's it's definitely a big hurdle. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. I think it has to be a grassroots type approach because it's it's never going to come from the top. Yeah, that knowing what you know and studying what you study to see that in people's homes, that would be crushing. That would be so hard. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we all know what it's like to be in this world. And you, you're filled with this, like, obsession and this passion. You want to go out and share it with everybody. You try to leave little comments here or there. And it's, it's tough because not everybody wants to hear it. Not everybody is ready to hear it at that time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's really tough. There's a lot of limitations there, but I'm sure you're helping a lot of people. Do you have any success stories that come to mind of people that were actually not only open to that idea but of, of doing a ketogenic diet but practically they were able to do it and things they saw as, as kind of like benefits I don't have any direct success stories just because um, patients have moved on and then I haven't been able to follow them up longer term however um, there are there are a, there's a handful of patients under our care just now who who have really been struggling for a long time and um, some of them are willing to look into into the dietary side of things. Unfortunately, there's one in particular I wanted to, who's who's on um, just about every psychiatric medication you can try and has had awful bipolar depression for a year plus and really struggled with it. And, and unfortunately, some people just aren't willing to, to make a change, you know, be it because of a family kind of organizational issue or, you know, there's lots of different reasons why people might not want to, to look into a change. Sure. Um, but... But yeah, I'm in touch with other people otherwise. There's some meetings that I go to, particularly with Reviro and um, the Steak and Butter Gang. And I do see success that way. It's just they're not my patients yeah. <laughs> directly. So. Well, that's the cool thing about what you do in your practice is like you, you might not have the most success with those people you're seeing in critical care acutely, but you have found Mm -hmm. other ways to share your message. Your social media is Mm -hmm. fantastic. You wrote the book metabolic madness, which I think is wonderful. Is that the reason why you wrote the book is to try to get that message out to more people? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that book was just me wanting to put down on paper everything that I want to tell patients that I often don't get the opportunity to tell or don't get to the chance to explain fully. Um, and it was also it was also just for my own for my own um, continuing professional development and to look at the the science that is out there that underpins using a ketogenic approach for mental health. So I wrote it partly to make notes for myself, but then wanted to just be a complete overview and make it really accessible and a quick read for people to get all the necessary information. So yeah, it's it's for a few different reasons, but yeah, one big one is just getting the message out there. Yeah, sure. And if you're looking for success stories, all you have to do is go to Amazon and read the reviews. And there's many success stories, mm -hmm. people that have really suffered and really changed their lives because they took your advice. What are some of the other points you really wanted to hammer home in that book? In that book? Oh, oh just, just for people not to feel hopeless. Um, even if they get a, a diagnosis of a major mental illness, um, and even if they've tried multiple different medications and, and haven't really fully recovered uh, to their kind of pre-morbid um, ability, like functional ability or, or wellness, it's just that I suspect for the majority, there are strategies that they haven't tried yet because nobody's really talking about using a ketogenic diet within, within the field of psychiatry in, in the UK that I know of. Um, but also otherwise, you know, therapists people would come in contact with on average, nobody's really going to have heard this or, or implemented a dietary change that could make a huge difference to their mental health. So I suppose it's a message of hope. Um, and like I say, epigenetics. So the fact that what we eat and what we put into our body can turn different genes on and off. And ultimately, ultimately, the choices we make um, is what determine our, our kind of health destiny, essentially. So, so I don't want people to feel to feel hopeless um, or disinclined from trying out different strategies just because they have a horrendous family history of, you know, everyone has schizophrenia or everyone has bipolar disorder or, or there's all sorts of different mental illnesses in the family. It's not an inevitability that that's going to be uh, kind of pan out to be their life experience. Yeah, that message of hope is so important. That reminds me of the work of the doctors Unwin, who are going out and helping people understand that yes, there is hope in this world. And just because you get a diagnosis of diabetes or heart disease or whatever mm -hmm. it is, like you can turn this around, take small steps, get the right mm -hmm. information, and, and you can help yourself. You can get out of it, which is wonderful. You write a lot about mm -hmm. the, the the connection between the gut and the brain. Can you explain some of the things you've learned about the importance of that connection? Yeah, absolutely. So. I don't know if it's just me and if I forgot um, or if I did learn about it in my training, but I, until I studied functional medicine, I think I hadn't fully appreciated or been conscious of the fact that the vast majority of our neurotransmitters reside in our gut. And it's our gut bacteria that manufacture the neurotransmitters. And so it goes to follow that our gut health is absolutely paramount for our mental health. And don't get me wrong, I don't think everything to do with mental health is about neurotransmitters. I think they're only one small piece of the puzzle. Um, but, um, you know, a huge interest of mine as well is leaky gut and intestinal permeability. And my personal view is that I don't think gluten is good for anybody, <laughs> um, full stop. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating to know that when you eat gluten, that directly causes leaky gut. So it opens up the junctions between uh, you know, like the tight junctions between your gut cells and your gut wall, um, and then lets different toxins pass through into your bloodstream that can have all sorts of detrimental effects at sites distant in your body. Um, so, 
Um, and then the other the other aspect of it is that there's a clear gut brain connection. So there's a hardwired connection um, along the terms of your vagus nerve. But there's also bidirectional communication that happens along different kind of immune pathways and hormonal pathways and different signaling that goes back and forth between the gut and the brain. And one influences the other and vice versa, um, which I, I think is really fascinating when you talk about having a gut instinct or a gut feeling about something. <laughs> you know, where does that come from? It all starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think that bi-directional signal is so important to understand. And like literally the gut is the second brain of, of, yes. of a human. That connection is is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm just fascinated by the gut because I think there's so much we don't know. And I think, you know, science is going to advance in the future and we're going to start to learn um, more and more about the microbiome. And I, But I think what we know at the moment is just a tiny fraction of what probably actually goes on in there. And you know, there've been some interesting studies showing some benefit with probiotics for some groups of patients, but um, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, you know, in terms of having to have a wide variety of fiber and fruits and vegetables in your diet and eat the rainbow to have a good microbiome. Um, I've got a good friend who works in functional medicine and they've told me um, quite conclusively that the, the best microbiome testing results they've had are on carnivore patients that they have. Uh, which is really fascinating. But then I don't know that we really know what an optimal microbiome is. And um, even with the testing, I'm pretty sure you get shifts in the different bacterial populations according to time of day. And then you get into circadian rhythms and just everything's all just interconnected in the body. <laughs> I, I definitely tell people like if if you run into somebody who says they know something about the microbiome, run away because they probably don't. It is so complicated and complex. And the more we learn about it, the more we, we learn about. Yeah, it, it's almost like blood work, where like different times of day are going to yeah. give you different results, and it's so challenging and complex to really understand. This would maybe be a really great time since you mentioned um, carnivore diets to go back and talk about your personal story. You at mm -hmm. some point recognized that you were a sugar addict, addict, excuse me. So, yeah. so what was your personal nutrition journey like? When did you start to find low carb? Did that, you know, go straight into a ketogenic diet? Did that go into a carnivore diet? Like, tell us a little bit about you and your personal history with diets. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about this. Um, yeah, so I've got into low carb probably about 20 years ago when Atkins was all the rage. And, um, I, I kind of dabbled with it on and off. I, I struggled to maintain, low carb in the form of Atkins all those years ago because I was still including some, you know, Atkins bars and artificially sweetened um, items of confectionery, confectionery in my diet. And that always derailed me. And I remember having very intense cravings for sugar and, and doing really well some days with Atkins and having a really clean diet and not including any kind of processed stuff. And then and then just just giving in to overwhelming cravings for sugar and just not being able to manage it and so I think I was I was roughly low carb but I wouldn't have been low carb to the extent of being keto for quite a number of years um, but then went through a, um, a kind of training program that was looking more intuitive eating and for quite a long time I felt like I had an emotional eating issue and, and that was the only thing I could think of and I hadn't fully realized it was actually a sugar addiction so I've read every single book that there is on emotional eating um, I remember doing a course here that that talked about about being your own guru so um you know testing out your n of one and doing what works for you but they used to encourage having 
more food that you could possibly eat in the house of stuff that you might be potentially prone to binging on or overeating. Um, it, I think to, to, to show you that, you, you know, you can always have more of that so you don't need to overeat it now. And, you know, when I look back at that now, you know, for a while it helped a bit um, and it was all about making sure you were truly hungry before you you ate. And I think the intuitive eating side of things is a really positive thing. But I think some of the message in there was wrong, particularly in relation to food addiction. Um, and then I went through say my biggest regret, but a, a vegan stint um, against my better judgment. And that was, uh, when was that? I don't know, 12, maybe 12 years ago now, something like that. Um, and I was vegan for about a year, maybe a year and a half at the most. Um, and I remember my dad saying, oh, it's just a phase, she'll grow out of it. And then that that made that made me persist with it for even longer than I probably would have <laughs> just to prove him wrong. Um, <clears throat> but that was really detrimental to me in terms of just my body composition and kind of losing muscle and just putting down a bit more fat and my immune health. So that's the only time I've ever had flu and been quite unwell with it. Um, and other things like skit, like hair and nails and other things definitely suffered then. Um, and then I came out of that after I had flu, lost my appetite for about two, maybe three weeks. And I just could not eat anything. Wow. Um, and, and it was a tuna sandwich. That was the first thing I actually wanted to eat. And uh, that's what got me out of being a vegan. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I've been a huge fan of Mark Sisson for years. So um read pretty much all of his books and followed Mark's Daily Apple for a long time. And then that got me into the more ancestral health principles and thinking about epigenetics and uh, barefoot shoes and all sorts of stuff. And um, and uh, so, yeah, I was kind of primal for, for quite a number of years before, I think about six years ago, I decided to go properly keto just because of some health um, issues in the family and, and I kind of knew at that point that's probably the best way to go anyway why, why am I kind of sitting in this halfway house of slightly higher carb intake but still low carb overall um, and it was a keto influencer so Vanessa Spina or ketogenic girl who I really respect her opinions on the science and I think she does a really great job but I think she was trying a carnivore approach at one point in time and that's how I first heard of carnivore because I'd never come across it before she did that um, and I remember thinking that's absolutely crazy what is she doing and then I thought well I trust Vanessa's judgment on other things so maybe I should find out more about this um, and so I went online and I watched Michaela Peterson tell her story at CarnivoryCon on YouTube and then I listened to Sean Baker speak at Carnivory Con as well about the just the defunct state of nutritional research really in epidemiology and and that was it I watched those two things and I thought I'm going to try this just out of curiosity really so that's why I tried it um, and I didn't really have any major health issues so I didn't think I had at that time and it was carnivore that really clarified for me as clear as day um, just the extent of my sugar addiction all those years so keto had improved it but I still had a couple of niggly issues with things like dark chocolate and um, nut butter so still felt a little bit more compulsive around those foods or just ended up snacking on those things when I probably didn't really need to be snacking um, so carnivore just yeah just um, made everything so obvious and so easy for me, just a, a level of satiety that I've never really experienced um, in my life before. And then made fasting so much easier to do. 
And I've been like making myself fast before, just intermittent fasting, nothing new, kind of really long fasts. But it just became everything just became really easy and straightforward with carnivore. And it completely got rid of any food preoccupation whatsoever. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for somebody like Mark Sisson and Brad Kearns and these guys who, you know, they, they basically created the primal space. Um, you know, mm-hmm. lots of nuts and seeds, lots of the the big ass salads you would eat every lunch and yeah, yeah. <laughs> had one every single day. And they were willing to learn and change their opinion on things. I remember when the book, The Keto Reset Diet came out, like, wow, these guys are talking about keto. Interesting. It was kind of like a newer thing and maybe like a little bit controversial at the time. And everybody was calling it a fad. I thought it was a wonderful mm-hmm. book that they wrote. And then they started to get more into the carnival world and they talked about that. And it was like, wow, like if Mark Sisson doesn't eat his big ass salad every day, maybe I don't need to yeah. eat a big ass salad yeah, either. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's a story that we hear so consistently. I was not feeling great. I was addicted on sugar. I started to pay attention to diet somewhere on the spectrum. I was either paleo or vegan or vegetarian. It got a little better, mm-hmm. but I had other health issues. I found keto. That was better. I certainly went in the better direction, but it was only when I went carnivore that everything Mm -hmm. resolved all the weird stuff, all the subtle things, all the things that you think back on that you'd forgotten about, like, like aches and pains and all kinds of crazy Mm -hmm. stuff gets, gets better. Mm -hmm. How long have you been on a carnivore diet? Um, so it's over three and a half years now. So it'll be four years kind of in the summer, um, this year. So yeah, between three and four. Okay. So almost exactly the same amount of time that I've been on. I started my 30 day, um, trial of the carnivore diet in April of 2019. I I loved it. So I never stopped. And so you're about the same. You've already mentioned it was July. July 2019 because um, I remember we'd gone on holiday and I, I think we were in Spain at the time and we, we were staying in a hotel that was just um it was great so it was like buffet restaurant and they had grilled meat every night and I remember going up and it was such it was such um it just messes with your head I think in the beginning because you think do I can I really not put any vegetables on my plate and I remember having I had a couple of mushrooms for a couple of days like just measly mushrooms at the side of this plate of meat and then I just ditched them and it was on that holiday so I always remember kind of what month it was I started carnivore <laughs> that's fantastic yeah. cool memories what surprised you about your mental health after going carnivore um yeah so I'm, I'm not somebody who's had kind of really any major mental health problems but what I would say is I've probably been prone to a little bit of social anxiety. Um, like I'm an introvert by nature, more of an introvert than an extrovert. But um, I, I kind of that that's just melted away and doesn't really cause me much of an issue if at all now. And I I kind of care less about what other people think of me. <laughs> that's something I was talking to someone about recently. But that's been a really nice perk to it. And the zero carbs in that people refer to. You know, I, I didn't really have a mood difficulty before, but I get days where I just can't really describe the sense of optimism and, and excitement that I feel for whatever is going on in my life at the time. And that's a definite change. And of course, I don't suffer with anything like PMS anymore, like I, like I used to. So I think that to get better over the years with low carb, um, it definitely has been problematic in the past. So there's definitely mood effects that I've noticed. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you describe it almost identical to the way that I describe it. Like now in hindsight, looking back, like, yeah, I, I dealt with things. It it wasn't to the extent that I would have been diagnosed with anything, but the anxiety or, or stressful events in life and little, little things that shouldn't bother you. They bother you. People cut you off in traffic. You get very upset. And like 
all of that stuff just tends to kind of go away where you don't, mm -hmm. you don't really mind those kinds of things happening. You're more grateful and more present for your life. And, and, and that's, yeah. that's a really great way to describe it. I love how you said just like this for no, for no reason, there's just like a wave of optimism. I, I get yeah. those all the time and it's wonderful. It's so yeah. different. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Um, I was—I think I had one this morning, and 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 then I was just reflecting on it, like, oh, there it is again. <laughs> isn't this great? Um, yeah. So, I mean, if that can happen for people like us, I, I just—you know—you just have to wonder what the potential is for people who have really struggled with their with mood and anxiety symptoms and and any other sort of mental health symptom that can come. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited, and particularly excited about carnivore. Just um in terms of the the benefit and the potential for benefit of that for people's mental health because it's a subset of keto um I, I don't know if you saw it but there was a really interesting podcast by Dr Paul Mason this week and um he was talking about I think it was called is your cardiologist a clot and in his usual kind of humorous way but he was talking about um atherosclerosis and the formation of um cardiovascular disease and talking about um, blood clotting in relation to that. Um, he eventually came on to plant sterols and, and a theory that, well, not a theory, there's evidence that plant sterols can integrate into your red blood cell membranes um, and end up causing dysfunction potentially. And they find red blood cells within atherosclerotic plaques. Um, and then there are certain crystal depositions you get within um, heart disease plaques that were always assumed to have been cholesterol but his what he was putting forward was that plant sterols are actually almost identical to cholesterol and he was putting the theory out there that perhaps it's plant sterols that are responsible for these crystallized structures within atherosclerotic plaques and that sort of stuff just makes me <laughs> so excited I can't explain and so he was coming on to say he's not even all that sure about coconut oil now so coconut oil is something that with a ketogenic diet, we would um, sometimes recommend to people to boost their ketone levels because of the medium chain triglycerides. And I've had a couple of people contact me or ask, you know, would I recommend that? And I've had to say possibly, so it can be a good way to boost your ketone levels. But actually I was aware in animal studies that, um, to do coming back to the gut again, that there's evidence that coconut oil in animals can lead to lipopolysaccharide endotoxemia, so LPS from gram-negative bacteria in your gut leaking across the gut wall and then contributing to inflammatory reactions elsewhere in the body because there's these toxins from the bacteria that can get elsewhere in your body. And then somebody sent me a link to um, Judy Cho's podcast from a couple of years ago when she had an expert on talking. It was just a four-minute clip and that, that's what they were talking about. They were talking about their concerns about coconut oil in relation to LPS endotoxemia. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. So sometimes when people have asked me, I've said, well, I'm just aware of this concern in animals. So I'm not entirely sure if coconut oil is absolutely ideal for humans. Um, and then there was Paul Mason this week saying he's actually veered away from recommending it because it's very rich, rich in plant sterols. And uh, with all the other evidence he's gathered, he's not all that convinced um, that plant sterols are healthy. <laughs> Uh, 
you're blowing my mind. You're blowing <clears throat> my mind. I, like I, so I again, I've done carnivore for four years. We talk to experts all over the world, but I still consider some foods like safer and beneficial. And mm-hmm. coconut oil would absolutely be one. Mm-hmm. MCT oil would absolutely be one. Avocados for some people might be one. You know, maybe yeah. some seasonal fruit some of the time. That that's bonkers. I have not heard any of that, and that is absolutely fascinating. I cannot wait to listen to that episode. Yeah, yeah, go and watch this episode. I mean, this is this is my most exciting thing that's happened to me this week. <laughs> it's only it's only midweek, aren't we? So yeah, I mean, it just it blew my mind. And then I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to look into that more. So yeah, the the more I do carnivore and the more that I find out, the more I the more I start to think, you know, maybe some of the experts out there who who do seem a bit dogmatic about things, um, although I generally trust their opinion, but maybe they are actually right in terms of having some sort of caution over some of these plant foods, um, even if it is something like coconut oil that, that seemed seemingly unproblematic. I'm, I'm not so confident about that now. So That is fascinating. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, we've talked to you know people like Dr. Mary Newport, who helped her husband who had Alzheimer's by feeding him coconut oil. And, and there was some mm-hmm. pretty clear benefit there, but... But it, yeah. it's like I get asked all the time about, is is this plant food okay in my diet? Can I have this sometimes? Can I eat this? And it's like, there's always a question. There's always a question. Mm-hmm. It's never yeah. like a direct yes or no. It's always like an, I don't know, maybe it, it yeah. might be okay for you. It might absolutely not be okay for you. All plants have toxins. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, I agree. And that's, yeah, that's where I'm at now with it as well. So I did have someone on social media recently asking me specifically about coconut oil and then and uh, that's partly why this reason came up. And and I, I started off by saying, I think it's probably okay, but I'm just aware of this particular issue to do with the gut. And um, and now by the end of you know, like mid this week, after seeing Paul Mason, I think I'm more saying I really don't know. And, you know, it, there might there might be a, a useful role um, for boosting ketones in a particular person if you really need to target your ketone levels for any reason, but whether that's ideal longer term, I think we just don't know, do we? So we just don't know. No. Wow. Well, you just blow my mind. That is absolutely crazy. <laughs> and uh, you've already mentioned some of the of the harms of plants, but it's so interesting that the carnivore diet it works in two kind of different but similar ways. You're you're getting the food that is the, the absolute safest, most nutrient dense food that you could possibly eat. And you're eliminating all of the question marks. If you're eating all mm-hmm. meat, you have no plants. You don't need to mess around with any of that. Like the person that was going back and forth with me on YouTube about how many oxalates are in blueberries. And I share my number. And he says, well, I heard it was this number. And the whole time I'm thinking like, well, screw the whole thing. Don't have any plants. <laughs> you won't have to worry yeah. about whether they have 20 <laughs> or 60 or whatever. You wouldn't know that anyway. It's just, it's so interesting to find a diet that is actively beneficial because you're eating meat and and it is not actively detrimental because of all of the harms and crap that we find in plants. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like so I going back a couple of years, I never would have believed that coffee could be really harmful. And I know lots of people still include coffee in their carnivore diets. And I I gave up for a while because it um it elevates my triglycerides. So I'm one of those people where it does push my triglyceride levels up. So after I found that, I, I thought, yeah, it's not ideal. I need to just stop drinking this. And then after a while, it crept back in a bit. Um, and every so often I'll have a decaf coffee, but somewhere, you know, if we're out somewhere and, and I think it's going to be good quality coffee, because I do worry about the mycotoxins and other other um, co- compounds and components that are in coffee. 
Um, but it was something particularly that Anthony Chafee said and an example he gave in one of his podcasts where I think it was in the workplace and a, a drug rep or somebody had come and visited and he'd done a really hard workout one day with a colleague. And then the next day the guy said, and the guy had said, I'm going to be really sore the next day. And the next day he came into work and he was absolutely fine. And Anthony had said to him, yeah, that's because of the carnivore diet and then a drug rep came in and offered coffee and this guy had a coffee and then within a couple of hours he was aching all over and when I heard that story I wouldn't have believed it but I've had my own experience of the occasional coffee if I go back to it um, and having wrist pain that I've never had in my life and I've had that on two separate occasions now um, with coffee from different places kind of months apart and then just just other times even if it's a decaf feeling afterwards yeah I just shouldn't have done that because I just feel a bit off or my stomach hurts a little bit or, you know, it's just, it's not really done me any favours. So I think carnivore is a great way of eliminating things and being able to really pinpoint foods um, or drinks like coffee that can really be problematic for you as an individual. And that's why it's so self-correcting is because it's up to the individual to decide is the coffee mm -hmm. better than feeling sore. And for some people yeah. it might be, and for other people it yeah. might not be. It's, it's an individual choice and everybody's going to feel that a little bit that differently, thing. but people that find yeah. carnivore, they're used to suffering. They're used to struggling. They're used to, you know, the, 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 the sugar addiction thing. I was going to say like, like all of my background in nutrition coaching is around coaching people emotionally and coaching behaviors. And like, if you came in and you had a bad weigh in, we would talk about what was your journaling like, or did you eat until you were 80% full or all these things that we would talk about, which is basically putting the blame back on, you know, the person sitting in front of me telling them they didn't do a good enough job is basically what it was. And just anecdotally from what I've noticed, if I can get somebody on the right foods, just, just go towards carnivore and see where that leads you. You don't have, you, you get to skip all of the emotional, you know, coaching because people don't need it. They don't need to go through yeah. that process because they're feeling better and they don't need to like worry about sugar addiction because they're not eating any sugar. They don't crave it anymore. It goes away. Yeah. And it's just such an amazing feeling to have a natural relationship with food and for it to be very clear when you need to eat something and equally clear when you need to stop eating because you've had enough. And it's just something so simple and so beautiful about that, that I, I don't think people experience um, on other, on other kind of dietary um, ways of eating. Yeah, so. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. You mentioned waves of optimism for the future. What things make you excited for the future? Uh, so yeah, I would, I would love to advance the field of metabolic psychiatry and, and, and get that going. Um, even in the NHS where I work. So I have plans and talks set up to try to maybe start, um, something, but I can't really, I don't want to run before I can jump. And, uh, and, um, and yeah, just just the opportunities that are out there. So I, I think just being able to connect with like-minded clinicians and coaches and to really grow this community and really get the message out there to other people. I just I, I you know, I, I really um I really get concerned about the state of the world in general and and the the capture, as I've said, of medicine, but also big food and the influence that that, that has over everything. And I think people are so misinformed and it's just really exciting to think that you could get a message about the truth out there and actually be doing good and trying to improve people's health. So that's what gets me excited. I love that. What a great way to end this conversation. Thank you so very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today about this topic. That's just so, so critical. Dr. Rachel Brown, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? 
Yeah, so I'm on social media on Instagram as Carnivore Shrink, and I've been updating my website. So that's foodforthoughtpsychiatrist.com. Uh, so people can connect with me either place if they want to. Excellent. We will link to both of those in the notes. Dr. Rachel Brown, like I said, thank you so very much for your work, everything that you've learned and had to go through yourself and to be willing to share that message, to write your book and get that out there. It's just awesome. And it makes me optimistic as well that the right people will find this message at the right time when they've suffered enough and are open and willing to consider something different. Hopefully this message finds them at the right time and they can really improve their life. And you're a huge part of that. And we're so grateful for you and, and for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've just loved our conversations. It's great fun talking about this topic. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients, and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.